Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. We're going to be diving into Ezra chapter 7 and chapter 8 this morning, both of those, and so it's going to be handy if you have it open. I want to ask you, do you have the hand of God on your life? And how do you know? What does it look like? We're going to talk about the hand of God this morning. As we get started, I want to give you, uh, I'll give you the secret. Here's where we're heading, so that if you have to leave early, you get the meat. You'll miss the fun part, but you'll at least get the meat. So here's the, here's the meat for this morning, and that's this. God's will, done God's way, receives God's blessing. Amen. Would you say that with me out loud? God's will, done God's way, receives God's blessing. Both of those are important. Have you ever noticed how sometimes we try to separate God's will from God's way? Have you ever tried to do God's will your way? Yeah. I've done that before. Doesn't work so well. And other times we've tried to do God's way. We live out God's way, but we're not living in God's will. That also does not receive God's blessing. This is not a formula. This is not a do this, do this, and then this. No, this is an axiom. It's the way it works. God's will, done God's way, receives God's blessing. Let me just illustrate it so we kind of get our minds around it. Two different people from the Bible. You've got Moses and King David. Take Moses first. Here's Moses. God's will was that Moses would be raised up to set the Israelites free from the Egyptians. God's way was not for Moses to kill an Egyptian and bury his body in the sand. That action did not have God's blessing. And then Moses spent the next 40 years as a fugitive in the desert working for his father-in-law. But you know, that time wasn't wasted. The Bible doesn't tell us everything that took place in Moses' life during that time, but we know that God was obviously at work in that guy, softening him, breaking him down, to the point where four decades later, Moses encounters God in a burning bush, and God says, hey, Moses, now I want you to deliver my people out of Egypt. And the same guy who 40 years earlier took matters into his own hands, you know what he said? God, I don't know if I'm the guy. I don't even talk real good. And the Bible doesn't tell us that this happened, but I imagine that God smiled when Moses said that, and God thought to himself, now you're ready. Now you're ready. Or take David, for example. It was God's will for David to be the king of Israel. God anointed David as the king when he was just a kid, 12, 13 years old. It was God's way for David to wait for God's timing in order for that to happen. Even though through the course of the next 13, 14 years, David had to run from the current king, King Saul, run for his life, hidden caves, wandering around the wilderness. 
on two separate occasions in that time period, David had the opportunity to kill Saul and usurp the throne. And David said, no, I will not lay a hand on the Lord's anointing. David insisted on doing it God's way, even when all of his guys said not to. As a result, eventually, David ascended the throne of Israel, and God gave the entire nation united around David and his throne. God's will, done God's way, receives God's blessing. Now this morning, we're going to look at Ezra chapter 7 and 8, and we're going to see in the life of Ezra this principle carried out in living color. And one of the words that gets used in Ezra 7 and 8 that points to this is this phrase, the hand of God. We're going to see that phrase, that gets repeated about eight times, seven, eight times or so in this, these two chapters where you read that the gracious hand of God was on Ezra. What is that? Well, in literary terms, it's an anthropomorphism. Say that 10 times fast. And anthropomorphism is any time you take a human characteristic and you apply it to something that's not human. God is not human. Aren't we thankful for that? Yeah. <laughs> right? God is a spirit. So when the Bible says the hand of God was on Ezra, God doesn't have a physical hand. He doesn't have a thumb and four fingers. So what's the Bible doing when it says that God's hand is on Ezra? What's the Bible doing when it talks about the eye of the Lord? God doesn't have an eyeball. What does it, what's the Bible doing when it talks about the arm of the Lord? He doesn't have an arm. Whenever you see these terms in the Bible, you need to stop and think. What is this telling me about God? Because what it's doing is it's helping puny human minds like ours to somehow comprehend something about the great God of the universe. And so what does Ezra 7 and 8 mean when it says that the hand of God was on Ezra? Well, think about your hand for a second. What does your hand do? Well, your hand does stuff. It lifts things. It carries things. It grips things. It points to things. It waves at things. My hand. But my hand doesn't do those things on its own. My hand lives really as a servant to my will. So that if I say, hey, I would love a cup of coffee, my hand grabs a cup of coffee. If, if I say, you know, I need to lift this up, well, then my hand lifts that up. If my hand says, I want to I greet that person across the street, my hand does the waving. My hand says, it, point, it does the, my will. My hand doesn't do your will. My hand does my will. Your hands do your will. Unless, of course, you ask me to do something, and then I choose to serve you, and then my hands serve you, but ultimately my hand is doing my will, isn't it? I've chosen to serve you. Does this make sense? When the Bible talks about the hand of God, it's talking about the will of God being done. God's hand exercises God's will. So when you see Ezra 7, talking about the gracious hand of God being on Ezra, you know what you're seeing? You're seeing God's will, done God's way, receiving God's blessing. Everybody say that with me again. God's will, done God's way, receives God's blessing. Now that brings us 
to Ezra chapter 7, and we want to take a look here. Now, one of the first things, I just want to say this, you know, here we are, Ezra, a book that bears this guy's name, and we have, this is now the first time we're introduced to him. You spent the first six chapters, never even heard about Ezra. Chapter 7, he finally shows up. And I think that that's the way that Ezra would want it. As you look at the life of this guy, you recognize this is a humble man. This is not a guy that's like, hey, I've got a book named after me. This is not Ezra's thing. And so here we are, chapter 7, verse 1, opens up by saying, after these things, stop right there for a quick second, after these things, after what things? Well, we've been talking in the first six chapters. Remember, Zerubbabel was this guy, that the Jews had been, had been slaves in Babylon for 70 years in exile. And then after 70 years, they were allowed to go back home. And Zerubbabel was the, was the man who led the first band of refugees, of exiles, from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And remember, they were doing things. They were rebuilding Jerusalem, but they ran into some opposition and last Sunday, we noted that they spent 20-plus years just at a standstill, nothing happening. And then finally, it was the Word of God that really just motivated these people to get moving again. And after these things, that's what it's saying. So after all of that happened, imagine now the temple is already rebuilt. There's already a group of people living in Jerusalem. They're trying to get things going. It's going kind of slow. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah. Can I skip all those names? There's a long list of them. And you go down to verse uh, six, verse 5. The son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest, this Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher, well-versed, everybody say well-versed, well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked for the, look at that, the hand of the Lord as God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. Why? For the gracious hand of God was upon him twice. By the way, do the math. How long did it take him to go from Babylon to Jerusalem? Four months. If I do it right, maybe five, however you want to count your fingers. Ten, verse ten, for Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. So three things we learn about Ezra right off the bat. The first thing you learn about Ezra is he comes from a really good family. You see his family line? It goes all the way back to Aaron, the brother of Moses, the first high priest of Israel. Now, if you're an ancient Jew, that's a big deal. That's impressive. Maybe for us to understand it a little bit, we might want to think in terms of our own culture. In America, we have certain family names. 
in our culture that are sort of a big deal. Like if you're talking to somebody and you find out that they are one of the Kennedys, right? You go, oh, mm, that's interesting to us. I don't know why, but it is. For some reason, the Kennedys have a shtick, right, in our, in our culture. And, and we think that's a big deal if you're from a Kennedy. You did nothing to do it, but you're there. The same with Aaron. Aaron, the high priest, Aaron, the brother of Moses, the very first high priest of Israel, Ezra traces his lineage all the way back to Aaron. That was impressive. They would have liked that in their culture. Second thing we learn about Ezra is that Ezra was a man who loved the Bible. He was a man of the book. Do you see that there? That in verse 9 or 8 there, it says that he was well-versed. He was well-versed in the law of Moses. To be well-versed, it literally means quick, swift. It also means that. Quick, swift with the law of Moses. In other words, Ezra knew, like, he knew the law of Moses inside and out. I mean, he was like a walking encyclopedia for the law of Moses. Anything you needed to know, Ezra's like, oh yeah, well, this is what it says. Anytime Ezra ran into a situation, well, this is what the law of Moses says about that. Anything that came up, this is what, see, he had, he had it on the tip of his tongue. He was quick, well-versed with it. I want to ask you this question. Are you well-versed with Scripture. You see, for Ezra, the law of Moses was all he had. You and I have the law of Moses. It's the first five books of our Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are the law of Moses. We also call them the Pentateuch, and modern Jews call them the Torah. Same, same five books. But for Ezra, it's all he had. That was his Bible, and he was well-versed in it. So I ask you, are you quick with scripture? No, I don't, I don't mean like quick to just like throw a spout off a Bible verse. You know, sometimes you sit in a small group and people pay like Bible verse tennis. Oh, well, this says this, this says that. Well, this verse says it, and this verse says that. And the group sits there and just watches them go back and forth. That's, that's just a couple of fat heads talking. That's all that is. No, I mean like, like quick with scripture. Like, like you got a situation that shows up in your marriage, and you know what the Bible says about it. Or, or something's going on with your kids, and you know what the Bible says about it. Or you're watching the news, and you see something that makes you do that, and you, you know what the Bible says about that. See? That's what it means to be quick with it. To be able not just to know it, but to actually apply it to situations. This is Ezra. Third thing we know about Ezra is that the gracious hand of God was on him. Says it twice in those first 10 verses. What is this hand of God? Ezra was a man who did God's will, God's way, and he lived under God's blessing. That's the kind of man that he was. And why was God's hand on Ezra? Verse 10 answers the question. It says, for Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Ezra had devoted himself, notice, to the study of the word, 
but also to the observance of the word. He wasn't just a guy who knew a bunch of Bible verses. This was a guy that lived it. It influenced every part of his life. And for this, the Bible says, the gracious hand of God was upon Ezra. And you know what's really cool about Ezra is Ezra doesn't really, like, know it. It's not like Ezra walks around going, hey, I'm Ezra, the hand of God is on my life. You might notice me. This is not the heart of Ezra. Ezra doesn't promote himself as a guy with the hand of God on his life. In fact, it takes other people in Ezra's life to point it out before Ezra actually ever really sees it. See? So, so here's what happens next. The king writes a letter. So I want you to, let me just paint the, paint the picture for us. So, back in Jerusalem... You've got Zerubbabel and all the people, and they just rebuilt their temple, and it's shiny and new. We looked at that last Sunday. And that building of the temple was actually funded by the Persian king. And now the king, King Artaxerxes, he, he recognizes, you know, they're going to need somebody who knows what he's doing to help them with that new temple and to help them in the observance of worshiping their God. They're going to need somebody. And so the king searches his kingdom, and he taps Ezra as the guy to do it. Ezra did not ask to leave Babylon and go back to Jerusalem. Ezra was asked by the king to do it. And this tells you something about Ezra's reputation. Here's a guy living in a completely pagan world, Babylon, you need to understand, it's not a Christian, right? It's a very pagan place, dark and everything. And Ezra's living in this environment, and the king, who himself is not a God-fearing man, the king is a, you know, he, he would be what we would call a pagan, and I don't mean that like in a, as a bat, I mean like he's, like literally, he worshipped multiple gods, he was a polytheist, he... That's, that's how, who Artaxerxes was. That was his belief system. And, and, you've got, and, and he's searching his kingdom, and he goes, who, who could I call upon to go back to Jerusalem and help them get this thing going? And he points to Ezra. He sees the hand of God on Ezra's life. And so he writes this letter, the king. And we see the letter in Ezra chapter 7. It's the rest of the chapter just about there. You, you can skim it while we go through it. But he writes this letter, and it's kind of a letter of recommendation, where you know Ezra would carry this letter back with him, and it says, hey, the king's, the king's backing me up. And in this letter, the king says two things about Ezra that I think are just super cool that point to the hand of God being on Ezra's life. The first thing it says is verse 14. Look at verse 14. The king says this about Ezra. You are sent by the king and his seven advisors to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. The law of your God, which is in your hand. That's a remarkable thing for Artaxerxes to say. Artaxerxes worshipped many gods. 
from Artaxerxes' perspective, all gods were the same. You know, just kind of worship whatever you want to worship, whatever works for you, man, that works, that's great. And Artaxerxes sees in Ezra that there's something special about this guy. You actually have the very law of God in your hands. Like, see, there's something about Ezra's testimony. There's something about the way he lived his life that the king noticed. This is not a guy who just knows Bible verses. Like, this is a guy who, like, you, you hold this in your life. You hold it in your hands. It's amazing. I wonder, friends, are you and I, would the same be said of you and me? You know, it's been said before, this is not my statement, that, that you are the only Bible some will ever read. And if that's the case, what are they learning about God from your life and from mine? If my life is the only Bible my neighbors will ever read. What are they receiving? What are they learning? You see, this king, this pagan king, looked at Ezra's life and he said, this is a guy who has the law of God in his hands. Hmm. Ezra represented the will and the way of God in his life. The second thing that the king noticed about Ezra is verse 25. Down in verse 25, he says this, and you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God. The second thing the king acknowledged about Ezra was, Ezra, you possess the wisdom of God. And you have this kind of wisdom such that this king can actually trust him to administer justice, to bring up administrates and judges to administer justice in the land. Can I tell you that that's the only kind of person that could be trusted with such a huge task? Is a person who has the wisdom of God, the person who is quick with the scripture. The person who, who knows the heart of God. Here's a situation. Two people are arguing in a civil dispute. Here's what God would say about that situation. Here's a person. This guy's committed a crime and he's done something very horrible and he needs to be dealt with properly. Here's what God would say about that, this situation. See, this is the only kind of person who can be trusted to administer justice is a person who possesses the very wisdom of God. Wow. Can I tell you that some of these Facebook warriors scare me? Because you're crying out for justice. You have no clue what you're asking for. Can I just tell you, you don't, listen, you cry out for justice, God will give it to you. He'll say, hey, you first. Can I tell you, I don't want justice. I want grace. Because if God gave us justice, we'd all be burning in hell at this moment. Do you understand that the only person qualified to administer justice is the person terrified by it? 
the person who has the highest of respect for it, who understands what it really is, that's the person who's qualified to administer justice, not somebody who's just all worked up over something. Do you hear that? Ezra was that kind of man. He knew the word of God. He had the heart of God. And he's like, okay, we can make wise choices about this. See, Scripture tells us in Proverbs chapter 9, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The very beginning of wisdom is to acknowledge the presence of God. This is where wisdom starts. If you remove God from the discussion, you can't have wisdom. He is wisdom. So the fear of the Lord is where you even start to get wisdom. And then knowledge of the Holy One, that's experiential knowledge. That's not just like I studied Him, but I know Him personally. An intimate knowledge of the Holy One, that's when you begin to understand. The better you know God, the better you know life. It's just the way it works. Think about it this way. Um, think about it this way. You know, like when you're at the gym, you know, the way to get bigger muscles is to lift heavier and heavier weight. And your mind works the same way. If you want to grow your mind, you need to think bigger and bigger thoughts. Well, the biggest thing to think about in the universe is God. You want to blow your mind every single day of your life? Discipline yourself to focus it upon God. Think about God. Be driving in your car on your way to work or something, and you'd be like, whoa. Taking a walk down the street around your neighborhood, thinking about God, and something will just hit you. Wow. God, you could never exhaust. We will never, never, ever run out of something new. To learn about God, He is infinite. So listen, the smallest minds in the world are those who give no thought to God. Doesn't matter how many PhDs they have. The biggest minds in the world are those who think deeply and think often about God, who allow themselves to be blown away. Like, I love it when people wrestle with, like, the Trinity. You know, that's kind of a common one. You know, some of us are like, I don't get the Trinity. I don't get the three-in-one. Cool. Think about that. Just think about it. Like, just let your mind go. Try to, try to wrestle with that. That's, that's, that's kind of the, it's doing the same thing in your mind, in your heart, as weights do for your muscles. You know? It really and Ezra's a man who, who thought about God deeply and often, who had God's word seeped in his heart. He's a guy who, who lived the will of God in the way of God, and he lived under the hand of God, received the blessing of God. This is Ezra, and the king noticed that. I think it's cool that Ezra doesn't necessarily brag, you know, talk about that. It's just other people see it in Ezra. And here's Ezra's response. This gives you a little clue into his heart. Chapter 7, if you go to the end. So now, the, now imagine <clears throat> Ezra has received this letter from the king. 
because that's how it would have gone down. He would have to carry this letter with him back to Jerusalem, and it gives the, you know, it's the, gives the king's approval for his actions. So he's got this letter now in his hand, and, and I imagine Ezra might have sat down to read it. It's kind of cool. The king just wrote a letter about you. So I'd want to read what the king has to say. And Ezra's reading this, and here's Ezra's response in verse 27. Ezra says, praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. You get the sense that Ezra saw himself as a pretty small player in all this? I mean, who am I? Because, why, why, why did the king do this? Why? Well, because apparently the hand of God is on me. I took courage and gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. Ezra took courage in the knowledge that the hand of God was on him. And this gave him the confidence that he needed to gather the crew together and make the plans to go back to to Judah, to Jerusalem, to help with the rebuilding there. This is what gave him the confidence. Ezra's not bragging about it. The king says he had. The king saw something in him, and Ezra's like, well, if this is what the Lord, this is the hand of the Lord, let's go. Let's do it. And so they went. Psalms 118, verse 6. Would you read this with me out loud? The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Can we read that again? This is such a good verse. I hope you remember it this week. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? Ezra knew that the hand of God was on him, and he had confidence. And that brings us to this question. Well, how do I know? If the hand of God is on me. So is it because everything went well? Is that how Ezra knew that God's hand was on him? Not necessarily. Because the first six chapters of Ezra we've been talking, we looked at Zerubbabel and those people. You could honestly say they were in God's will, doing things God's way, and they were under God's blessing, and yet they experienced opposition. And they, they, were, they ran into trouble. So, so I think we can only safely conclude that, that success is not a measuring stick for God's hand on someone's life. Because God's hand can be on your life and you could be getting clobbered. And God's hand could be on your life and like Ezra, it could be smooth sailing. So how do I know if God's hand is on my life. Well, you might not like the answer, but the answer comes down to our statement today. God's will, listen to it, God's will, done God's way, receives God's blessing. You might get clobbered for it, but God's still blessing. It might be smooth sailing, but God's still blessing. At the end of the day, the only way that I can know that I know that God's hand is on me, that God's favor is on my life, 
is when I, like Ezra, I know the Word of God, I'm in the Word of God, living the will of God in the way that God would have it be lived, now I'm confident, as Ezra was, to know I've got the favor of God. Do you see this? The gracious hand of God. Ezra, in chapter 8, verse 22, um, Ezra kind of summarizes it this way. In chapter 8, verse 22, he says, The gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So who, on who does the hand of God rest? It rests on everyone who looks to him. Not those who are perfect. Let's clarify that. I don't want you to hear this morning that, oh, I have to do God's will perfectly, perfectly in the way that God wants me to in order to have God's favor. Now I'm frozen. I want to make sure I do it right. That's not the heart of this message. You're not doing it perfectly. Probably not. Look at what Ezra said. This is his testimony. The gracious hand of God is on who? Those who look to him. That word look, it also literally means to investigate. To investigate. In other words, the man or woman who takes the time to investigate the word of God, to come to the heart of God, to discern the will of God. That person, you know, you and your, you and your spouse hitting the snag in your marriage. Okay, great. What's the word say? Let's, get, let, let's investigate the heart of God together and see what we got to do. You're coming into some trouble with your kids. Let's investigate the word of God and see what we need to do. You got a, you got a situation at work you got to deal with? Let's, let's investigate. Let's look. Look to the Lord. Let's look to Him. And I want, I want to investigate the will of God so that I can do it the way of God. And he says, that's the person on whom God's favor rests. Love that. So be encouraged. This is not a message about you being perfect. If you've heard that, I'm sorry. It's just a message about you determining that you're going to Hold God's word in the highest esteem in your life, and you're going to investigate. You're determined and decided that you will live the will of God in the way of God. And then you're confident that you're into the hand of God. Now, sometimes you hit a snag in this. And that's explained in Ezra chapter 8. And I just kind of wanted to show this because I think it kind of gives like the, uh, you know, you think Ezra's charmed, but he really isn't actually. And so you got to see this other side of Ezra in Ezra chapter 8. So here's Ezra. His desire is to, to you know, to, to do God's will God's way. And he, and he hits this kind of a little bit of a snag. And it says there in chapter 8, verse 21, There by the Ahava Canal, I, now this is Ezra talking, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. So at this point now, Ezra has now gathered everybody together, and they're staging at this spot near the Ahava Canal, and they're getting ready to start the journey back to Jerusalem. And here they are, they're gathered, and Ezra says, 
We got to stop here first. We got to fast and we got to pray. Why? Well, verse 22. Um, I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. Do you see the pickle that Ezra got himself in? So here's, it's very clear the hand of God is on Ezra, and he's on these people. And you can almost see Ezra like, yes, the hand of God, we're cruising now. And then he stops and he thinks, wait a second, the trip from Babylon to Jerusalem, that's across the desert, four months, five months long, a lot of, a lot of thieves, a lot of bandits, a lot of robbers along the way. We've got just, I'm a preacher, and some other guys, and some women, and children, and some stuff, and whoops. We might find ourselves in a little bit of trouble walking across this desert. What if we run into some bad guys? And Ezra says, I, but I felt ashamed. I was kind of embarrassed. I didn't want to ask the king to give us an armed guard because that didn't make sense. On one hand, the hand of God is on us, and we're cruising. Do I ask him for an armed guard? And Ezra says, nah, you know what we're going to do? Let's fast, let's pray, and then let's move. Listen, God's will done God's way. The Bible's pretty clear. Prayer is God's way. Fasting is God's way. We might not like it, but it's God's way, you know? And, and, and Ezra and the people, that's what they did. They got on their knees, they fasted, they prayed, they sought the Lord, and then they said, okay, let's take off, let's get going. And you know, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I wonder if there were some people in Ezra's party at that point that said, I don't think I'm going to go now. You mean, you don't, you don't have an armed guard going with us across the desert? Mm, I don't feel too cool about that. Maybe, we don't know. My point is simply this, that when we desire to live God's will, God's way, it does run up against common sense at times. Not always, but sometimes. And when it does, do we go God's will, God's way? Or do we adjust God's way and we say, God, you know, I think I know better how to do this. Why don't we do it this way, God? I have a great idea. And the way that I choose to do it is always the way that makes the most sense to me. Have you ever noticed that? God's way doesn't always make perfect sense to you and me. Ezra was a man who sought to know God's will, sought to do it in God's way, and he lived under God's blessing. And so what have we learned this morning? Let me just summarize it. Ready? Let's all say it together. How many times have I said it in this sermon? Probably like 50 times. God's will done God's way receives God's blessing. You know, there's no greater example of this than in the life of Jesus. 
Jesus was a man, God-man, who lived God's will in God's way and received the blessing of God. You and I are here today as a result of it. Just think through this. God's will was for Jesus to be the savior of the world. God's will was for Jesus to pay for the sins of the world, for you and me, to make us right with God. That was God's will, for Jesus to come to, to right our wrongs in order that we might be reconciled with God. The way of God was the cross. And yet, when Jesus was tempted by the devil, if you're familiar with the three different times the devil tempted Jesus, really the bottom line of those temptations was to get Jesus to claim dominance without the cross. That was really the greatest temptation. It wasn't that Jesus is hungry and he wants bread. You know, that, that, it, it, it was much bigger than that. The devil's trying to get Jesus to take a shortcut. Hey, how about you save the world this way? And Jesus refused. And then on the very last night of his life, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, sweating drops of blood, cried out to the Father, Father, if there's any other way. And the Father said, no, there isn't. And then Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. Your way. And Jesus went to the cross and he paid for your sins and for mine. That if you and I would receive him and his gift, that we would be made right with God forever. Jesus did it God's will, God's way. And you and I are here as a testimony to that this morning, are we not? And I want to give you the opportunity this morning, if you have not yet received Jesus as your Savior, I ask you, do you know him? Do you know him? Jesus did this for you. Can I tell you, he's coming soon. Yeah. Like we're at the end of the end. I don't know how many more days we have left as a human race. I really don't. I'm just telling you, it's soon. Yeah. Are you ready? If Jesus came back today, is he coming for you? Is he coming for you? The only way that you can know that is by humbling yourself and asking for God to forgive you, and asking for God to make you right with himself. Not, oh, I'm a good person, so I know Jesus is coming back for me. No, no, that's not what I asked you. Have you received the gift of Jesus? Have you received his forgiveness? Because that's what matters. Not how good of a person you are. What matters is, remember, God's will done God's way. This is God's way. God's way is that if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord, you will be saved. This is God's way. Not you being a good person, but you submitting and receiving the gift of Jesus in your life. Does this make sense? I pray it does. Friends, how do I know that the favor of God is on me? God's will, done God's way, has his favor. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out 
at newriverchurch.org.